guys, good morning. Good to see you today. Listen, um, we are in our final week of questions you never thought you could ask in church. You know, this is the fourth week that we've been doing this the past three weeks. Really, the questions that you guys have just been pouring in. We have more... we have more to clean up today that we didn't get to last week um, that, that we're going to begin with, and, and I anticipate that, that they're just going to kind of come flowing in as well. And uh, for those of you who are new to this, let me just explain briefly what's going to happen here. What I want you to do right now is take out your cell phone, and you are going to find a number up on the screen right there at the bottom right. Any question you have, God, theology, life, the Bible, Christianity, church, fellowship of faith, whatever it might be. Anything's fair game, we invite you to text it in. 815-314-0363. I will get those questions anonymously, and I will do the best job I can right here in real time to answer them on the spot. So I invite you now to start texting them in. But while you do, and before we go into some of the questions from last week that were left unanswered, I also shared with you last week that I would be giving some questions of my own, some of the things I'm thinking about and asking and, and, and re- maybe wrestling with and struggling with. And uh, as I was preparing for this, you know, you kind of sit down and you, you open the laptop and you start typing. And like that, you hit like 100 questions. And it's like, hmm, this isn't going to be too fruitful to just kind of like read this list and, okay, go home, guys. So what I'm going to do today is a little bit different than what I planned. But the way that I'm going to interject some of my questions is by letting them ride on the coattails of your questions this morning. So as you ask a question and it raises a topic or or opens up a thought pattern, I'm going to share with you some of the questions, if applicable, that I've been asking in that arena as well. So again, 815-314-0363. Let's back clean up from last week. Someone asked this. For the most part, my life has been easy in comparison to others in other countries. Often I feel guilty when I hear of the struggles of others, for example, immigrants. As Christians, how should we respond to the world's problems? Do we give up everything to help? How do we help Are donations enough? And I've got to tell you, I have wrestled so deeply with this same question myself. I got to tell you, I wrestle with this question so deeply still today because oftentimes I have those feelings of guilt too. But the question I ask myself is this. Is God calling me to feel guilty over something? Is he truly convicting me on something? Or is God calling me to rejoice in the gifts he has given me? And apart from guilt, motivated out of love, do something with that. The answer, I think, is both. But I'm not sure how that equation plays out in my life at any given instant. Now, as Christians, I know that we're called to respond to the world's problems with love. That's the short answer, but of course the difficulty is what does that look like? Do we give up everything to help? I don't know. You know, I see models in the Bible, the Good Samaritan, for example, where the Samaritan stops and he inconveniences his day. And his next few days, he puts the the broken man up on his own 
vehicle, if you will, takes him to the inn, pays his expenses, comes back to check in on him, and kind of opens a tab with the innkeeper. At one level, the good Samaritan did not make it his entire life mission to follow this person around 24-7, and yet he seemed to invest to this nth degree. What does that look like in any given situation, especially when there seems to be more need in this world than any one human being could address? Could you imagine if you sent in money to every single request that came your way? Here at Fellowship of Faith, we had a practice for so long, we have a benevolence fund, that we would just give to anyone who asked. Until we were talking to another church who said, yeah, we realized we gave away $150,000 and didn't make one bit of difference. It is such a hard road to navigate. But what I try to wrestle with in those kinds of situations is what do I focus on? And how do I do a few things well rather than many in a mediocre fashion? And yet, how do I allow God to adapt that to what he's bringing my way? And how do I adopt a posture that says he is probably calling me to something more than I'm comfortable with? It's hard because it reveals to me every time. I care about this much when God's asking me to care about this much. I want to write you out of my life with a check. But is God calling me to something more? Whoever you are, I'm so with you in the struggle on this. Maybe you and I, let's sit down and talk and pray together and see what we could discover, you know, in the process. Now, this is the obsession of fellowship of faith. Seriously, it's like the ninth question that's, that's come in on this. When did you shave your beard? The epic date was June 16th at about 2.15 p.m. How about this? Transgender people. What's the church say about them? Well, it depends what church you're talking about because remember, the church is not monolithic. Different churches will give different perspectives or different answers. Let me speak for us here at Fellowship of Faith. God loves transgendered people. We're called to as well, even if we don't know any or don't realize it. I want to throw a stat out to you today. 40 to 41%, depending where you look, of people who are transgendered have attempted suicide at some point in their life. I mean, if that doesn't stagger the imagination... And if it doesn't show us that people who are transgendered or are considering it show us the burden that they're carrying, the struggle that they're facing, the, the torment that they have with themselves. See, Jesus loved people who are often on the margins of accepted society and loved these people who are hurting and broken. And at some fundamental level, I know what Jesus calls us to do is the exact same thing. Now, I believe that God makes us who we are and that hormones and organ replacement does not do enough to replace the gender you are. But that doesn't mean the person isn't struggling or tortured and that's so how do we just love them through that along the way? Here's one. 
as Lutherans, are we obligated to root for Germany in the World Cup? If I, uh, if I heard this right, wasn't there a big upset? Didn't Germany win? But are, are, they still, are they still winning or are they out? They're still in. All right. The short answer to the question is this. Not if your last name is Gadini. How about this? Should I attend my gay friend's wedding? If so, should I be happy for them? Give a gift? Always give a gift. Come on. That's not... But I'm with you. Or not go at all by conviction of my faith. So many people are struggling with this, have struggled with this, and I, I suspect people are only going to be struggling with this more and more and more. I can't answer the question for you. And the reason why is because it depends at your place and your posture of faith. What I want you to read is Romans chapter 14 and 15. Spend about five minutes today and just let Paul take you on a journey through wrestling through these crises or matters of faith that you might have. What's fascinating in the argument is that Paul seems to indicate that people who struggle with things like this are probably weaker in their faith as opposed to stronger, which is contrary to the popular thinking most Christians have. And if in somehow and in some way, at a chink in the armor of your faith, you find yourself feeling like you have to choose between honoring God and honoring someone else, you always have to choose God. You always have to honor God first, even if it's because of a failing on your part. But if this person is a friend, and they mean something to you, and you want to attend their wedding... Go for it. Go for it if you can do it in good faith. If I had a friend who was going to marry a friend of the same sex, I would probably go. It doesn't mean that I think homosexuality is an acceptable practice in God's eyes. But they're still my friends. See, Jesus ate with prostitutes, even though he didn't condone prostitution, and went to wedding feasts, where people got drunk and on the fifth day turned 80 gallons of water into wine. Attending something isn't necessarily condoning something. And if the person really is your friend, I don't think you're going to talk them out of their wedding. But if they're your friend, you can share openly and honestly how much you love them and how much you're struggling. And if they're really your friend, I think the friendship will remain. How about this? You know, I got a series of questions last week asking about things like exorcism, if it's real, and, and if I ever participated in one or conducted one. And, and, and the questions kind of kept coming and coming. And I was very intentionally elusive with my answer of just keeping it yes, yes, yes. And these are three follow-ups that I didn't get to that came in last week. So... Did you witness or perform? Yes. Can you tell us more, please? Yes, I can. Please elaborate on the exorcism. I think we're all interested in hearing about it. I bet you are, but I'm not going to, and I'll tell you why in a moment. 
Please elaborate on how an exorcism goes, what happens during one, etc. Look, a lot of people unrelated to exorcism will come to me bearing deep guilt in sin, and it's called the practice of confession. We know it from Hollywood, if from nothing else, right? And when someone comes to me in, in a time of confession, I don't find it my place to revel in those stories with other people. You won't believe what blank did. You know what I'm saying? Because it seems to violate something very personal and very vulnerable and very sacred. And guys, I got to tell you, when someone is demonized, it is the equivalent of spiritual rape. And for me to tell stories about some people here, who have had to suffer through that and find affliction in that. It just feels out of place for me. Now, I will be more than happy to talk you through and walk you through various aspects of what it looks like in general, but when it comes to the specifics, I just can't go there out of respect for the people who have suffered in that. But I can tell you this. It is so less sensational and sexy than people think it is. And honestly, if I was to tell you about what it looked like, you'd be bored. It isn't all that amazing. The questions that I ask, though, when I find myself in those situations is how much of what a person is afflicted by or suffering with due to mental illness or spiritual forces at work? And how much do those intertwine and manifest themselves as one and the same? It's a tough question. To what degree can believers find themselves demonized? Because I believe they can. But degree, in what form will that take? And how much should we view possession, not as someone taking control of a body, some outside force with heads spinning and projectile vomiting, but just being in the ownership of the kingdom of darkness? And therefore, how much should something like coming to Christ or baptism be viewed as an exorcism in its own right? Because then the devil no longer possesses you? in the truest sense of what that word means? These are some of the questions that I wrestle with and think about and ask. And of course, in, in the model, how much do you pray for someone in this? How much do you evangelize to someone in that? When is enough enough? And when do you back out to let God do his work? When does it become more harmful than good to interfere and interface? It's the tough questions that anyone who's been in the field with this has to face. And uh, I'm neck deep in them. So hopefully that gives you a taste of both sides. Now, it says last week you said that God's view or future vision can change. Did I not hear you correctly? If not, please explain. I gotta be straight up, I got no idea what you're talking about. Um, I, I don't know what I said that you're quoting because I don't remember that phrase, but it may have been this. I did suggest or say that God can change his mind. God can do something and then change his mind. And the reason I see it is because you see examples of it in the Bible. Genesis 6. God actually repents. Do you know God repents? God actually repents. He's sorry that he's made creation because of what a mess it became. And he changes his mind and decides to do something different. I think of the story of Jonah where he sends the prophet Jonah in with one message, in 40 days your city is toast. <laughs> Absolute. 
And then they all repent and God changes his mind and doesn't strike them down. You see examples of this. It's at one level why you could say prayer works. Because God seems to be swayed. The question I ask, though, in my own prayer life, when do I need to be praying for something more and when do I need to be praying for something less? When is God really calling me or wanting me or going, come on, step it up. Don't let me off the hook. Fight me down. And in what areas of life am I trying to hold on to control and using prayer as a mask for my own agenda? That's a struggle for me. And I haven't figured out how to navigate that one clearly because you'll see the Bible seemed to indicate both paths and ways. Here was one. What actually happens the minute you pass away? I was once told the Lord approaches you to see if you will accept him, believer or non-believer. Well, to that last sentence, I have no idea who told you that or where they're getting that from or what that's coming out of because that goes beyond what I would say is the witness of Jesus or the biblical witness. I don't know what happens the minute you pass away and how time stays static or relative even in cases on the other side. What I do know is how the Bible paints the picture that those who die in Christ are better by far. It's better by far to be on that side than, than here. And so it's something that can be hoped for and anticipated and not feared. I know that those who die in Christ are with Christ in closer communion with him. I also know that the biblical witness says this, that when you die, you are naked because you are apart from your body and your soul is ooh, exposed. Bible's words, not mine. And that you're still waiting for something. That there's something more than what we think of as the end goal of heaven. Some things to think about. How about this? Why do we, I assume referring to fellowship of faith, practice primarily infant baptism when everyone in the Bible, including Jesus himself, was baptized as an adult? Good question. few things. One, we actually don't arguably primarily practice infant baptism. Here at FOF, we have a pretty even spread of people who are um, infants versus people who are uh, children, teenagers, or adults. So um, it's not actually an accurate comment um, to our church. But being said, to the more uh, deep, deep theological insight that I think is being wrestled with here, the reason that everyone in the Bible, including Jesus himself, was baptized as an adult because it was a first-generation faith. And most people don't go and evangelize infants. They go evangelize their parents. And there are some arguable um, examples of where you see whole households being baptized and that may have included kids. You know, you don't know. It doesn't say. But the reason that we practice infant baptism is because, quite honestly, we believe it does something to you. And it does something good. That it's not just a symbol as an expression of a professed faith, but somehow and in some way God works through this thing called baptism. And if God works through this thing called baptism, why are you going to deny that to the people most important in your life that you want to see be in Christ? That's kind of a quick answer to a deep theological 
question. Can you make a non-believer a believer? No, you can't. But you can have an impact. See, it's only God, it's only the Spirit of God that can take a heart and transform it. It's only the Spirit of God that can give new birth to someone, regenerate someone, bring them from darkness. I don't care what metaphor or idea you attach to it. Only God can make a non-believer a believer. But the catch is this. God chooses to work through you. Through your words, through your actions, through your prayer life, through your activities. And so you're not off the hook and helping or hindering people either. The question that I wrestle with every time with people who are unbelievers, particularly those close to me, is just like, how do I do this? Because I get so afraid that I'm going to scare them away, say the wrong thing, hurt them in some way, confuse them. You know, I, I get so hung up in all the wrong things. And then I start asking myself this question. How can someone who has read so many books and has had so many experience in this suck so bad at evangelism? I mean, it staggers the imagination how bad I am at it. And it staggers my mind every time I find myself in those conversations. Maybe it does for you as well. And I find myself knee-jerk and just going, God, just just take this and run with it and, oh, Lord, forgive me and just see what kind of mess we can make together. If you're in the trench and you're paralyzed on it, just, just throw yourself out there and make a mess, you know? Be loving, be kind, be good, be honest. See what God can do with it. How about this? Let's talk about unicorns. Also, what's, the plan- what's with the planets and why don't they have people? Well, the planet does ha- Earth does have people, so some of them do, right? Um, the reason the other planets don't have people, quite arguably, is because they're too far, too close from the sun. We're in a Goldilocks planet. I mean, come on. I mean, try surviving on Pluto or Venus. That's ridiculous. So um, they don't have people. But uh, as far as unicorn is concerned, um, I mean... I don't know. I kind of think they're weird. Um, They don't really do it for me, but it seems like 10-year-old girls are all about them. Um, So if you're into that kind of thing, I would just say if you're a 40-year-old dude, tread carefully. Um, And if you're a 10-year-old girl, embrace it. And uh, if if, if you have one, let me ride it someday because that would rock. All right? So there we go. Let's see some of what came in. It always takes a moment. So how about that World Cup? (laughs) All right. Why was Jonah so disappointed that God didn't destroy Nineveh? You read the story of Jonah, it'll take you 10 minutes, I swear, at most, God say, Jonah tries to avoid everything to going to Nineveh because he doesn't want God to do good in Nineveh. He then goes to Nineveh because of beat getting swallowed by a whale, right? 
You know, you can't run from God. He goes, and then God shows him mercy, and, and, and Jonah is ticked. Why was Jonah so disappointed that God didn't destroy Nineveh? Because Jonah was an ass. All right? Well, that's true. He was. And you know what? A lot of times you and I are too. What is the church's stance on taking medication for mental illness? By all means, do it. You know, there are some churches that believe mental illness is purely something of, 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 of a demonic nature. And that to go to medicine in that is A, either not helpful or B, somehow denigrating the power of God. Can I just ask you this? If you had cancer, would you take something for it? If you have an infection, would you do the amoxicillin? You know, the Bible never says that mental illness is a sin, and neither should we. Now, I'll also be quick to say that many people are too quick to think that medicine alone will be their savior. And for those who have been on medications, while I found them to be helpful in many cases, I've also found them rarely to be enough that we are holistic. And that when we struggle with mental illness, it has effects in other ways, too. And so a holistic approach of medication, but also therapy and behavior recognitions and spiritual quotients as well goes a long way. When I was younger, I felt much closer to God than I do now. How do I get that feeling back? I don't know. It's not uncommon for me to have emotional dry spells in my relationship with God and be fully aware of them and to find myself asking the same question. Because, man, when you're high on God, it feels so good. I found this as a question that pertains to a lot of avenues in life. I've met with couples who have been married 10 years, 15, 20, maybe even two. They remember what it was like when they were dating. How do we get that feeling back? Can I suggest something to you today? Maybe that feeling is not something you're supposed to go back to. Maybe that feeling that you have enshrined as the sum total of your relationship with God was nothing more than a step into a deeper relationship with him. It's interesting when you watch moving water that you could look at rapids, white water, and it's exciting. It's frothing and it's moving, but it's very shallow. But then you look at something like the Mississippi, which doesn't seem to be moving at all, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cubic feet of water are being moved every second beyond what that exciting white water looks like. Maybe that feeling is not what the relationship with God is about, but there's new feelings, new experiences, new manifestations as well. Now, if you are stale or dead in your relationship with God and it's continuing for a long time, I am not suggesting leave it the way it is. What I am suggesting is rather than trying to run back there, say, Lord, where does it go with us from here 
instead. And let the newness of what he brings you into expose you and allow you to experience new feelings that will bring with them different kinds of adventures. Are you with me on that? Does that kind of follow? All right. All right. Uh, it's not really a, a question, but I'm going to kind of comment on it. My, my answer to the questions about gays is, hate the sin, love the sinner. I mean, at some level, cliches are helpful, but I, I'd like to modify it instead. If you are struggling with homosexuality, temptations, urges, or attractions, and you're wrestling with this in your relationship with God, and you just hate this thing that's going on inside of you, I get it. We're called to hate the sins in our own life and throw ourselves in the mercy of God. And I encourage you to walk that path. But if you're hating someone else's sin, worry more about yourself instead. Because a lot of people will say hate the sin and love the sinner as some kind of way to stand above others objectively apart from others, without much realization of what their own manifestations of sin that they should be far more concerned with are instead. Or as Jesus put it, be more concerned with the log sticking out of your own eye than the speck with your brothers instead. Hate your own sin. Why does God make children suffer from disease? I don't think God does make children suffer from disease. I think you're confusing what God ordains and what God allows. Just because God allows something does not mean he wants it, likes it, or says it must be so. And if you think that God is orchestrating the suffering of children, you're reading them wrongly. But to the spirit of the question, It never ceases to amaze me at just how much God does allow. I feel like if I was God, I would do it differently. How about you? Which should kind of like show something to us right here off the bat, shouldn't it? You know? It never ceases to amaze me at just how dangerous God is. Our God is a wild, dangerous God. A far cry from the safe, predictable deity we often want to make him. Our God is a God who will allow people to make the most horrible of choices without intervening. A God who will allow people to play out the consequences of their choices and the consequences of others' choices in their lives and give that freedom within it. I find myself asking the same question, why? God, why do you do it this way? And all I can hold on to in some of these times is this, that God says it's not always going to be this way. That it might not be now, but God will intervene. The day will come and things will change. How about this? A friend of mine just had an experience with what she said. Um, an angel came and spoke to her. I believe her. How and what do uh, you do to help 
encourage her. You know, I don't know your friend and I don't know the situation, but I have many people come to me and ask stuff similar. How do I know if it's God talking to me? And I ask the same question instead as well. Whether God or, you know, promptings of the Spirit or angels or whatever it might be. And the simple answer is this, I don't know. I know that God or an angel or whatever you're seeing or whatever you're hearing will never tell you to do something if it is truly of God that is contrary to his will and his way as he's revealed it in his son and he's revealed it in his scriptures. But there's this whole intermediate kind of thing where we're sitting there day by day going, God, is this you or is this just me? Is this you telling me or is this just me? I find I can't get simple answers to that question all that often. So what I would encourage you to do to encourage your friend is to continue to test it, to sift it, to apply her brain or his brain and not just his or her heart to the situation, to let more than emotion dictate what the path will be and to not do it alone but to stand in the cloud of witnesses here in 2018 today and for 2,000 years before today of wisdom and tradition and insight that has been given in how to God works and moves and calls us and guides us and directs us. And if that feels like too much work, then stop listening to the voices in your head. How about this? Don't even know what that means. (laughs) What does God look like? I can actually give you an answer to that. And while it is not an answer in its totality, it's pretty cool. Read Ezekiel 1. Read Revelation 4. Read a gospel and see what Jesus looks like. Is anything different from the Bible in the movie of Jesus? Lost me on that one. All right. How about this? How does the Lutheran affirmation of the genus Myostaticum protect the communicado idiomaticum from lapsing into an Nestorian Christology? It's actually a question that I've wrestled with myself. I've come to the belief that, especially in Neoplatonic situations that the Lutheran church has often fallen into time and again, the genus myostaticum is often given too much elevation over the genus idiomaticum or the genus apotelismaticum because it seems to elevate the spiritual at the sake of the material and can lead us into a non-Nestorian approach and a Eutychian version and error instead. So hopefully that helps who's ever asking this amazing question, but I am with you. I am with you on that one. Since we, statement, since we are called to Christ and Christ crucified, then we are called to accept, forgive, and love. Since you gave a statement, I'll ask a question. What what are you called to accept? 
in reference to 1 Peter 3, 19 to 20. Who were the spirits in prison and when did Jesus speak with them? Asking for a friend. Yeah, I'm sure you're asking for a friend. Man, it is such a weird passage in the Bible. Um, You know, I don't know. But there is good argument that could be made that it was people from long ago at the time of the flood, the Nephilim, if I could even give that kind of language, as, as 1 Peter 3 puts it, or those who fell into their, uh, their, their purview, their, their, their dominion or their offspring in some kind of way, and uh, it was probably something related to that. So, if we are created in God's image, what image is that? I've wrestled so long with this. Like, what is that attribute? And many Christians have as well. What does it mean when you get down to it to be made in the image of God? Now, most people historically have gone down a path of looking for some kind of attribute or characteristic. God is like this, so we are like this, and therefore we share that characteristic as well. So God is rational, so we're rational, or God is just, so we're supposed to be just, or, or something like that. For a variety of reasons, I think that is sort of a dead end. I think to be made in the image of God has something more to do with position instead. Calling, vocation, charter. Less to do with sharing some kind of DNA or characteristic and more to do with sharing in a purpose, sharing in a vocation that God has for Humanity. And that vocation you can find in the first chapter of Genesis. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over it. God is the one who creates, and God is the one who has authority, bestows that right on humanity to create and exercise God's authority over his creation. And that, I think, is closer to what it means to be the image of God. I looked at the clock, and I hate it when I do that because it means i got to stop. The questions came flowing in again. And I just want to thank you for putting yourself on the line. Uh, I hope this was helpful for you. It was certainly an, an enjoyable experience for me. But I want you to hear this. Even though our formal question series is coming to an end, the questions are not coming to an end. And if the series has, has expressed anything, I hope it's this. This is a church where we invite you to ask your questions. A church where it's safe to express your doubts. A church where you can let it be known that you are a heretic And we love you anyway. Keep the questions coming.